1: Hello and welcome back to the Hindu Studies channel of New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. You can find it about my background at rajbalkaran.com. More importantly, I have the pleasure today of speaking with Dr. Borayin Larios, who is Assistant Professor at the Institute for South Asian, Tibetan, and Buddhist Studies in Vienna. Hello, Borayin. How are you?
0: Hello, Raj. I'm very well. Thank you. And thank you for the invitation as well.
1: Uh, my pleasure. Our pleasure here. We are speaking uh, We are speaking to him about an open-access book that you can all access by clicking the attached link to this post. Uh, the title of his publication is Embodying the Vedas, Traditional Vedic Schools of Contemporary Maharashtra. So this is obviously a fascinating uh, read for anyone interested in Hindu studies or Indian thought and culture. Arguably... Um, the Vedas, uh, or this idea of something being Vedic or not is one of the most pervasive uh, themes of what we may call uh, Hinduism today, and we'll certainly dig into that, but why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about how this book project came about for you?
0: right so um, well it's it's a project that took quite a while uh, to to see the light of the day. Um, I started actually with my master thesis on uh, one particular Vedic school, um, looking at one particular Vedic school. And the, the reason why I was interested in that is because I came to hear Vedic recitation um, for the first time sometime in my teens. And that really kind of uh, blew my mind, literally. I was I was really impressed by these Brahmin priests reciting um, these mantras at such a, you know, uh, unison and 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 um, yeah, how to say it? It was it was just um, really um, fascinating experience to hear how the pronunciation was per- perfect and they were singing in a group and the 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 reason why I was really fascinated because it was the the defeat of memory. I could not believe that someone could uh, recite from memory for so long, right? So that was the the thing that sort of triggered me um, to look more into um, the Vedic tradition. And so i I first uh, did my m um, a trying to study one of these um, schools. Um, so to speak, anthropologically. And then I realized that there was not so much uh, literature on the subject at that time. Um, So I I sort of thought that would be a great dissertation project and decided to um, look deeper into these schools in Maharashtra by expanding the network, so to speak. I had uh, so far looked at one school um, but I heard that there were many others, so I wanted to also look at these other schools and also see the differences between the different schools. So that was the, the main motivation there.
1: And would you say then that's the primary aim or theme of the book, to look at these schools and survey um, their similarities, differences, and the extent to which they preserve tradition?
0: Yes, definitely. I mean, that's, that's sort of, so to speak, um, one of the core aims of, of the book is to look at, you know, how is this transmission of knowledge um, that we've perhaps read in books um, still alive today, right? And how, how the ideal that we read from, say, Sanskrit uh, literature, um, how does that uh, look like in, in contemporary India? And well, in, in Maharashtra in particular, um, so it's a, it's a book about the oral transmission of the Vedic tradition of the Vedas as 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 um, um, bodies of sound, and it's also about the Brahmins themselves. So it's an, an, an ethnography in the sense that it looks at, at not just as the, these schools as institutions, but it also tries to look at Brahmins. Um, themselves and what they are trying to do in contemporary India.
1: So why don't you tell us, for the purposes of your book and your research, what you mean and what you refer to as the Brahmins? Because some of our podcasts, specifically um, the last one we did on the snake and the mongoose, really problematized that idea, at least in uh, ancient India. So for the sake of our listeners, when you say the Brahmins, what do you mean?
0: Right, that's a, that's a tricky question somehow. I mean, I also try to problematize this in, in, my, in my own um, book by, um, um, by complexifying how Brahmins themselves have portrayed themselves throughout, throughout history, so to speak, right? And so how do they construct their identity, which is also an important part of, of the book, uh, especially at the, at the end. Um, but what I mean by, by Brahmins is, um, traditional families who, um, who were born into the, the, um, Brahmin, uh, caste, right? They have a, a Brahmin birth. And, um, of course I, I don't mean all the Brahmins in Maharashtra, uh, but I mean those Brahmins who consider, consider themselves orthodox and, um, actually learn the Vedic recitation. Um, so, um, yes, I, I mean Vaidikas in that sense. So Brahmins who um, learn to memorize the Vedic texts in particular. But I do problematize uh, the, the, the notion of, of the Brahmin and, and who, who I mean by Brahmins in, in the book itself. Um, but I hope I, I sort of pointed to, to an answer there mm-hmm,
1: for sure now would you say then that uh, the brahmins that you, that you research uh, that their primary function is to actually preserve these Vedic utterances
0: yes yes that's that's the whole aim of um, of these these schools actually so it's interesting because very often uh, when I, when I used to talk to people about my project, they would think that in these schools, children would learn uh, Sanskrit and how to you know, interpret the Vedic um, scriptures. But the truth is um, these these schools are um, similar in that regard to, um, for example, madrasas where, where children are uh, Basically trained to reproduce the sounds of the Veda, um, and not so much the the um, content or the semant- yeah the semantic content of um, those mantras and those hymns. So um, mm-hmm. I I, re- I think it was Fritz Stahl who who once said they're like walking tape recorders. Um, so the, yes, the 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 main aim of of this uh, traditional Brahmins is to um, a learn to to memorize and reproduce this these texts um, and to to pronounce them accurately uh, and to also learn to employ them in ritual. Those are the two main aims and. Um, the exegesis, so to speak, of of the Vedic mantras is sort of a a secondary or, or uh, an, an additional branch of study that uh, does not necessarily belong to these schools. So
1: this is um, this is a a profound feature of what we call Hinduism, and definitely worth discussing, particularly given your background and research in this book. Um, as you mentioned, I believe in your introduction, uh, when we refer to Hinduism as the oldest living tradition, really what we mean is Vedic religion, um, and the the oldest living tradition, really what we mean is this um, presumably unbroken lineage of oral transmission uh, from student from teacher to student of the Vedic revelation. You make an important distinction in your book between the Shastika and the Vaidika. And just so our audience is clear, it's the Shastika whose job it is to understand the exegesis of what is meant by the utterance. And there's an entire class of, of Brahmins whose sole function it is to preserve the precise utterance for the sake of um, ritual effect. Now, and you can you tell us more about why on earth a culture would invest so much in in the preservation of the utterance and not necessarily the meaning thereof
0: right. so one one very important uh, um, concept in the Vedic tradition is that um sound itself right the, the, is 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 the meaning, right? It is uh, what's worth preserving it It is what's powerful, right. And um, especially if you look at certain um, uh, corpuses as already um, Fritschdahl had shown, uh, they don't necessarily mean anything as in semantic content. For example, if you look at the Samavedic Psalms, right? Where you have um, basically um, utterances that, that don't have any semantic meaning, right? Uh, so there the, the power is in the sound itself, and therefore, um, the 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 sound needs to be protected uh, and be be transmitted as accurately as possible. Um,
1: when you say power, um, you don't mean power to hold or produce meaning. So, what kind of power do you mean in this context?
0: Well, um, it's it's a, it's a rather complex notion, but. Um, the first the first thing is is this Vedic recitation right um, is is meant to preserve the order of the universe Ruta right and so um, with with this um, with the ritual and the recitation of these mantras basically the whole universe is um, being preserved from uh, allowing the sun to rise, to the rain to fall, and so on and so forth. So it's it's a, a kind of a participation in this cosmic um, um, cycle, right? And and for Brahmins, it's part of their their um, they're paying their, their depth and uh, their their runa uh, their, Aruna, their uh, depth to uh, the ancestors. Um, and and to uh, keeping on this universe functioning basically, um, so uh, it's considered to to recite right to this swadhyaya this um, um, recitation of sacred text came to be considered uh, brahma yajna so the the sacrifice of and to brahman right and um, yeah so there's there's also um, for those of you who are, who are more interested in, in the topic, there's there's a, a French uh, scholar uh, Charles Malamud who, who wrote this uh, book, "Cooking Cooking the World" or "Cooking the Universe," um, where he where he explains how what this, this uh, recitation uh, is is part of of uh, the the balance uh, of the universe, basically.
1: How did you end up in Maharashtra, and, and why, how did that become a focus of the schools you looked at? Um, incidentally, I, I was there in 2012 for Sanskrit training um, at the American Institute of Indian Studies in Pune, so I am somewhat familiar with the lay of the land there, but tell us why Maharashtra?
0: Why Maharashtra? It, it's it's a, almost a mere coincidence. Um, the first school i i, uh, I was invited to uh, observe uh, in satara uh, for my uh, master's thesis uh was was or is based in maharashtra and um basically thanks to their invitation and generosity i was able to um you know stay in their school and then from from there i create this this network of um, uh, of other schools that I could, uh, you know, visit, so um, it it was almost coincidental. And then I also I also you know saw that there was not so much um, work being done on Maharashtra in terms of the Vedic tradition. So it was a, it was um, a win win situation in the sense that uh, had I gone to, for example kirala uh, to visit the Nambudri brahmins um, as Stahl and others have done then um i could have i could not have compared um, that to 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 the classical so to speak uh, works that have um, been written on the subject whereas in Maharashtra, there was nothing nothing on Vedic education at least that I could um find so uh, it was kind of virgin territory for me as well um, and yes, over the years, Maharashtra has sort of stayed my my um, field of of work, and uh, it's a place I enjoy very much. I, I mean, as 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 you know, Pune uh, is one of the um, more more uh, welcoming cities in, in 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 India, and comfortable to uh, to stay. Um, and so that was another plus. <laughs>
1: And of course, its patron deity is none other than Ganapati, Ganesha himself, Lord of Wisdom. So perhaps it was a wise choice to do your research. Yeah. What, um, what was the process like um, in terms of your encounters with these students and these Vedic priests? Tell us a little bit about um, barriers, if there were any, or the idea of preservation or secrecy or openness. And tell us about your experience um, researching.
0: Right, so I have I have a, a part of my of my um, introduction is is um, is sort of so, sort of explaining my experience as um, an ethnographer and a participant in uh, in these schools and how I on the one hand uh, received enormous um, generosity and welcoming to these schools. Um, but on many other occasions, it was a territory difficult to navigate. A, because I was a foreigner, and therefore, uh, according to the traditional notions, I was um, not necessarily considered to be pure. Um, some of these uh, Brahmin schools have very strict rules of uh, ritual purity, and therefore, uh, I, you know. Uh, a foreigner or, or just anyone who is not a Brahmin uh, is is considered um, sort of a um, a potential danger, at least in the, uh, ritually speaking, to um, to these schools. So it was not necessarily always easy uh, to to approach the schools or to get access to them. Uh, but on the other hand, there was an enormous um, curiosity and generosity of heart, especially from the students, but also from many teachers. Um, so it was it was uh, really uh, quite an experience for me to live among these children who, you know, frankly speaking, lead completely different lives than uh, we do, right? In the sense of, of like the childhoods that, um, that we have in, in, in Western countries or even in say modern India versus the, um, the, the lifestyle that they lead. Um, it just, it was, a, it was a humbling experience and it was also fascinating to, to watch. Um, in terms of like communication, it was not always easy because, um, you know, there was a language barrier. Um, I attempted, uh, Learning Marathi, but um, I, I must confess, I wasn't very successful. And uh, um, so, I, I, communication usually happened uh, either in in Hindi or English, or a mix thereof. Uh, sometimes in in Sanskrit um, uh, for for those uh, children or teachers who, who actually spoke Sanskrit. Um, but it, but um, it was it was a challenging, um, you know. Uh, to to have that those conversations sometimes um, so in in many cases I had to rely on um, a translator uh, uh, who could, could who could help me out um, but many times I was just also not necessarily conducting interviews but just sitting in the classes observing um, you know the daily schedule observing their uh, the relationship basically between student and and teacher and I got a lot I learned a lot just from from sitting around and and observing um so yes I guess that that would be
1: an answer so there is a lot of interesting themes there um I'll ask you a couple of questions and then you can answer um uh uh, you, you you can tackle them as you wish. Well, first, a comment. It seems that perhaps you were met with the hospitality that is accorded to a guest, that is proper to a guest in uh, traditional Indian culture. Um, one of the dictums being that the guest, much like the mother and the father, and the guru is like a deity, uh, a divinity, uh, coming into your home. Uh, while you were met with the hospitality accorded to the guest. Certainly, uh, that's not tantamount to the access accorded to an, an initiate. This idea of uh, purity and pollution and access, um, one question that comes to mind is, certainly as an outsider, uh, a foreigner, so to speak, you wouldn't have the uh, requisite ritual purity in the eyes of, of this tradition. Now, is that to say that all Brahmins would have the, the purity to access the t- these teachings?
0: Um, no, I, I guess, I mean, it depends on what level, right? So they're, are different, like ritual purity is, 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 um, of course, always context dependent and, and there are always sorts of, uh, sort of ways of negotiating that. Um, but just to give you an example, right? Um, uh, with food, which is, which is usually one of the ways in which, in which you uh, get to learn, <laughs> about ritual purity so in many of these schools um, when I was visiting there I was um, offered food um, you know and um, I would either be served first and kind of in an isolated place or I would sometimes be served with the students um, with the brahmin students or sometimes I would be asked to go and have food somewhere else, um, right? So because food is such a central um, aspect in which you know, um, purity and, and, and hierarchies are, are kind of negotiated. Um, I, I had very different experiences depending on which school I was or, or even whether other visitors were coming or not. Um, and and to speak about the hospitality yes totally i agree i mean that was certainly one one part of like being welcomed and 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 you know devo bhava so the, you know the the guest is like uh, god um but on the other hand if 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 i try to stay longer or just be part of their daily life their daily schedule then of course um other Things came up right so for example, where would I sleep, where would I um, you know um, uh, take a shower things like that right um, so so it was it was interesting on that level because I learned a lot about you know what does it mean to negotiate that that purity and and for Brahmins themselves being in in the modern world, so to speak, there are a lot of um, uh, so there's, There are a lot of uh, uh, tensions regarding what is acceptable and what's uh, not acceptable or negotiable. Um, and, and, and there's, there's um, a whole chapter on this as well in the book on ritual purity and, for example, how they should uh, dress uh, or whether they're allowed to have ice cream or not or watch a movie, you know, things like that.
1: So tell us about, um, tell our listeners about the requirements of such a one, of an initiate of these children who are born in the modern world, but are also in a very, very different uh, space. Tell us about what it takes to be um, a member of this lineal transmission.
0: Well, of course, the, the first requirement uh, is that you come from a Brahmin family, right? So not everyone gets to, gets to go to... to to a Vedic school, at least the, the schools, excuse me, that I sur- uh, surveyed, except for one, and maybe we can talk about it later. But, um, so the first rule is to, to come from, from a Brahmin family, from a Brahmin background. Um, ideally, uh, you should go to learn uh, your own Veda. So each each uh, Brahmin family is born into a particular uh, veda and a particular branch of the veda so a shakha um and so ideally you would go and learn your own shakha right so if you're born in um in a, say taytiriya brahmani uh, um sorry taytiriya uh jayurveda family you would go and learn uh taytiriya jayurveda right um but nowadays because they're they're um less and less students available on and also less and less um schools um you know students would sometimes go and learn another veda uh, depending on what's available or another shaka maybe the same veda but another shaka um, so um, there's there is flexibility around that um, but then so the but then the the other major requirement is of course the uh Upanayana, which is the um, initiation ceremony uh, or the threat, sacred threat investiture, in uh, which basically is a ritual that um, traditionally was meant um, for Brahmins to uh, start their education. It was their uh, initiation into the Veda, right? So it was when they first heard the Gayatri mantra uh, whispered into um, their ear, and then they could basically start to To learn the the Vedic canon from that moment onwards, so that is that is still a very important component um, of of uh, Brahmins who want to study there. They they need to have had their sacred thread uh, t- ceremony and performed. And sometimes they they do that even uh, you know at the school if they're sent there um, young and and or too young and have not yet had the the ceremony. Sometimes. The schools themselves uh, perform it um, for them, for the families. And then uh, the other requirement is is basically to live with um, the teacher uh, in the school, uh, and uh, dedicating your your life basically, or at least a period of your life, to learning the Vedas. And that, that of course, varies uh, according to um, different factors, but um, perhaps the most important would be your own capability of uh, how good your memory is, basically, and how fast can you learn Um, uh, and be the curriculum of of your school. Um, So depending on which shaka you are learning and depending on what your guru says, you would would then uh, sort of learn. The the I would say the minimum requirement would be to learn the Samhita, um, uh, but of course many schools uh, teach uh, uh, more than that, right? And so the the curriculum is sort of open upwards. There is you can basically be a student for the rest of your days if you want to, so. um, but but um, there are also sort of minimal requirements to. Um, at least get the title of Vedamurti, which is the, the title given in Maharashtra for one who, uh, commonly given in Maharashtra for one who, who finishes basically the, the, the shaka training or, or the basic uh, corpus uh, of recitation, uh, which is an interesting term uh, as well. And that, that's where, where I got the, um, the idea for the title of the book, which is the embodiment of the Veda, right?
1: So how long would a student, uh, on average, typically take to attain uh, this level of mastery, Mukti?
0: Well, um, it's hard to tell. I mean, I have, I have a few figures in the book, uh, depending on the shaka and the curriculum. I would say, on average, if, if they actually complete the, the curriculum, is about um, between, I would say, 7 and 12 years. Um, but of course, as I said, you can you can uh, prolong that, uh, and and a lot also um, uh, stop before. So there are different reasons for for interrupting one's studies, but usually um, it is it is uh, an economic one. So it's it's often tied to as soon as they can make money, they they're taken out of the school, or or they themselves want to um, start earning money and and give up their studies. So it has also led to. When, and so
1: and so for such a one that makes it to the uh, Veda Murti status, what is the fate of such a one? Um, do they then go on to professionally um, perform rituals?
0: Right. So there, there are different career options, so to speak, after one finishes one's basic training. Um, so one very... Uh, um, say beloved career option is um become an astrologer a jyotishi, which is sort of sort of like a combination of um a priest and um an astrologer so, so they they sort of they're trained as well to determine when is the right time to perform a ritual and then they become family priests basically they perform the different samskaras the different uh uh, 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 rites of passage for for families or um, other ceremonies such as such as uh, inaugurating a house or or the laying of brick for for the first building and so on and so forth. So they become um, private priests. That's that's one option. Um, the other option is to become a temple uh, priest, which is which is another um, option. Then another one would be um, to to become a teacher yourself and and establish a school, Um, and and many also just after their their school uh, their their studies at at the school they they decide to go completely different ways and and like try to get a job say in uh, I don't know. uh, An IT firm, right? Even though they've not necessarily had the training to do that, but they would, you know, do uh, an an additional year of study in, say, uh, business management or whatnot, and then and start a completely different career. Um, But yeah, I would say the most common would be to um, become a house priest.
1: Uh, Yeah. One quick question regarding. Regarding these priests that become uh, jyotishis, as you say, uh, astrologers, um, we mean um, electional astrology, muhurta, so they use their, their astrological training to elect the right time for rituals, correct? Or do you also mean that they do jataka in terms of, well, this is your life, this is your destiny type thing?
0: Well, they might do both depending on their inclination. When I, when I say Jyotishi, uh, or, or the use of jyotisha is, is mostly um, uh, in the sense that someone has an issue in their life or wants to, uh, you know, accomplish something, and they will go to them, uh, and then um, they will determine the remedy or the solution for that. So, for example, they'll say, okay, you need to um, um, perform this and this um, practice. Um, for example, I don't know, recite this particular mantra and abstain for this, for, from this particular food item and perhaps, I don't know, uh, sexual intercourse on this and this day because this particular planet is, you know, uh, troubling you or something, right? So that's, that's uh, or, or you should perform a yagna uh, for a particular deity right so they would they would sort of suggest different options and and also depending on the means of the person uh, in order to to obtain the, the the desired result
1: would you say that um, would you say that such priests or priests in training would you say that they are fairly sheltered from modern culture or that they have a dual citizenship and they sort of have this outer worldly side and this other inner Vedic training side.
0: Um, I'd say it's both (laughs) in a way, right? So there's always an effort. If you read the book, there's, there's a, there's a conscious effort, especially from the teachers to shield students from, from distractions from, from the outer world uh, and from modernity in particular. Um, so, for example, they will not uh, allow them to go out of the school and interact with other um, people unless it's, it's work-related or studies-related. Um, they will um, try to minimize, for example, uh, media consumption such as uh, movies or uh, for those uh, who have access to the internet, basically, you know, to minimize the use of, of technology to, to access um, potentially distracting uh, media and so on and so forth. And on the other hand, they also try to um, be relevant citizens of, of India. And most of them are really aware of the difficulty of, of negotiating, uh, you know, being in the world, uh, in this modern world, and at the same time sort of preserving their ancient knowledge. And so it's, it's a tension that's always there. Um, but in, in the case of technology, on the one hand, they will try, for example, to minimize uh, the students from watching TV or you know streaming YouTube or whatever. Uh, and on the other hand, they will use technology um, for their advantage. For example, they will um, use recorders or phones to record their recitation and play that back uh, as a way of um, uh, a tool to, to basically to study um, or to preserve or uh, document uh, certain rituals and practices. So there, it's not about uh, just technology per se or, or the modern world per se, but but sort of negotiating how to preserve tradition and the purity of the tradition, while at the same time uh, using the, the advantages of, of, um, of modern world, basically.
1: Yeah, the tension is quite profound. Um, may I share a story with you? Please. Actually, uh, I'm currently based in Toronto, and just about uh, an hour north of Toronto, uh, there's a, a suburb called Richmond Hill. There is the Richmond Hill Hindu Temple, which, if I'm not mistaken, is um, the largest Hindu temple in North America. Currently, um, South Indian Tamil um, founding uh, most of the, the congregation there is is a, a, a South Indian um, Tamil speaking Hindus. I visit the temple uh, fairly regularly. What's interesting is that um, I come from the West Indies, and my ancestors are North Indian, so I don't speak a lick of any of the vernaculars there. So I have this, there is this um, There is barrier when it comes to language or dress or even food or caste. And um, they're very welcoming there. It's just that I'm from a very different texture than they are. However, um, with the Sanskrit and the ritual and the, 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 the bhakti elements, I can identify right away. Now, in recent visits there, I've noticed that a couple of the priests that work there their sons are in training. They've, they're they're, they're Brahmin-born, um, Toronto-born Brahmins who've undergone the Upanayana, their sacred thread. And you see these young uh, boys uh, who are as Canadian as Canadian can be. They're, they're children of the West, of the modern age. And they are engaged in training with their fathers in a way that you wouldn't even know what century you're in when you're watching them. And if there was ever a project I'd want to do, you see, I'm a textual scholar. So I have no regrets. I love, love decoding Purana, decoding mythology. I love it. However, uh, I was naive as an undergrad. I didn't even realize that one can get (laughs) (laughs) credit for interviewing people, Um, (laughs) uh, learning about life and and being a natural extrovert. That's what I did when I was distracting myself from my studies. And studies was always textual in my mind. It never never occurred to me that ethnography that that that, that uh, conversation could be a medium for, for scholarship at that point. I have no regrets, but if I was to do a an ethnographic project, I would I would interview the young men at the Richmond Hill Hindu Temple and and sort of uh dig into what must be a, um I don't know, I don't want to impose my, my my categories on what they're experienced, but I imagine it would be a dual citizenship and maybe at times um maybe even jarring going from one million to the next, because they're also enrolled in, in public school in Toronto by day. So wow. I, it would be fascinating to understand this tension. So I just, this, as, as I was reading your book, this, these young men came to mind and I thought this is really fascinating to see how this would even work in um, traditional Vedic training uh, in Toronto out of the Gurukula. Now, mm. for our listeners, thank you for indulging the story our listeners, why don't you tell them a little bit about uh, this idea of the Gurukula, and very specifically, a very, very important concept: um, the Guru-Shishya Sambandha. So, the the uh, I guess you'd say the the teacher-disciple relationship. This is uh, of profound importance, uh, the cornerstone for the transmission of Vedic texts, um, and I think it I think it is something that's worth um, worth unpacking for our listeners
0: yes yes uh, indeed it's, it's one of the the, the the I would say one of the most important uh, chapters in the book on how basically a, a student becomes a, a, a teacher right um, by by learning to embody um, the Veda in a way that basically is is mirroring the teacher right so the the, um, the gurukula, the word gurukula actually means the the guru's uh, house or the guru's household or entourage. And um, so the the transmission of, of the Veda happened uh, since time immemorial basically, um, through this transmission between father and son. This was the, the traditional way was um, you know. Father and son. If we look at, if we take uh, the the, um, the the scriptures for for um, as as historical documents in a, in a way, right? Um, and, and so the transmission was within this household, in which you would basically not just learn from the mouth of your father um, or your guru, in this case. Um, but uh, you would also basically do anything uh, that, that was uh, um, required of you in, in the household. Um, so it was not just about learning uh, the, the text, right? It was learning how to be, you know, a, a Brahmin, a Vaidika, which included, I don't know, you know, fetching water or feeding the cows or learning how to, um, talk to people so all of this is is i i i would say very very important in this tradition to to basically become or acquire this this identity uh, and and this is, is still very relevant uh today uh you know uh, the, the the model of um guru and disciple and the whole uh, surrender of one's um um, say identity as an individual for this this ideal of becoming uh, the embodiment of the Vida. Um, so I mean, the, there's 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 a lot to say about you know what what it means to to be a, a teacher and a disciple in this context. Um, but but I would say that that it is definitely at the core. Of um, of this of this transmission, right? The 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 whole Vedic mantras and the whole recitation lies in in this particular um, relationship, and it's a, it's a very intimate uh, um, pedagogical um, uh, model, so to speak, in which you basically become uh, your teacher. That's that's the whole aim to become uh, your your guru, uh, and and before before that happens, it, it, there's a complete surrender to um, to that person, and you can have more than one guru, of course, but but in in, in the sense that you you are disciple to uh, um, this this teacher who is um, not just Teaching you how to to recite, but also is like a father figure, right? He is um, uh, your model, basically, um, to be to 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 emulate. So, is it the
1: disciple's prerogative to emulate the guru, become the guru, as you speak? Insofar as the guru is uh, Veda Murti, is that the idea that 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 the student's job is to um, emulate the teacher who it, it, um, insofar as teacher embodies the Vedas, or is it beyond that?
0: Yes, I mean, I, I guess that's that's the because the Guru is seen as basically the accomplishment of and the embodiment, or say, a walking uh, um, entity of of these scriptures of this knowledge, right? Um, but it goes beyond just being uh, the Vedas as a text. Um, but also as um, a way of life. So there, there's a lot about, the, the discourse is a lot about the, way, the Vedic way of life. To become a Vedic is therefore not just um, to know to perfectly reproduce the text, but also to behave and to act like a, a ideal Brahmana, right? And, and uh, so that, that of course implies um, many things beyond being able to, um, you know, be be a very excellent reciter or um, a, a, a virtuoso in 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 ritual, right? Um, so it goes it goes beyond that, for sure. Uh,
1: that definitely resonates. Uh, I think of the the guru-shisha relationship as not only the riverbed for the, the transmission. Of um, of whatever in this case the, the Vedas, um, but also that it's a transmission of a way of being, uh, of a way of of being in the world, of a way of relating to others. Um, an important thing that you note is that there are certain observances and a certain standard of ethical conduct that the student is expected to adhere to. Um, it's sort of backwards than what then i believe we're used to thinking of it in that the conduct is required up front in order to even receive initiation compared to well we go to the guru to learn how to abstain from alcohol or meat or or sex or, or what have you um have you come across this this notion of um sort of the yamas and the niyamas, to use uh, yoga terminology, or, or have you come across tensions in terms of what's expected of the students in order to receive initiation?
0: Oh, definitely. I mean, it's not so much about uh, uh, necessarily in order to receive initiation, but more like once you've had initiation, basically, you have to, you have to raise um, the bar to, and to meet the standard, right? Um, and so there, there are a lot of, uh, we were talking about ritual purity before, and of course that relates to um, the Yamas and Niyamas, if you will, uh, which, which are, uh, you know, there's a long tradition uh, of Dharma Shastra. And so in the, in, the, in, the, in the Dharma Shastra texts, there is always a longer chapter on how the, the Vedic uh, student, the Brahmacharin, should uh, um, behave. And how she, how you know also how he should behave in uh, in, in relation to, to his teacher? So all of this is is has a long history of of, of um, encodedness or or it has been encoded in 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 this text uh, from you know from the time of the of the um, Dharma Sutras basically and the Dharma Shastri texts. And and the question is how do they negotiate that? in 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 modern india right so there there are many ideals or many rules if you will that are um stated in in the dharmashastric texts um that are followed in these schools but some of them you know have started to change as well and just to give you an example uh in most dharmashastric texts uh, it is written that the brahmacharya the student should um sleep on the floor right no mattress no just on the bare floor and um and so in some schools in one particular school um that i visited i saw that there were bunk beds in in the in the in that school and um so i inquired and and the the teacher um that i asked the question to he was he was a little embarrassed, you know. He, he because he um, he knew perhaps that this was sort of the expected from the tradition, but that they had you know basically accommodated that, and and he basically said, oh, we didn't have the power to decide. the the sponsor, right? the the person who had sponsored the school decided to donate bets for the kids, and and. Of course the, the, the donor didn't know that that um, students were supposed to, to sleep on the bare floor and um, therefore they were sleeping now in bunk beds. And this just this is just a perhaps a paradigmatic example of of how things are sometimes you know tolerated and certain changes that are clearly, you know, not to be uh, not not meant to be in, in, in the classical text but, but uh, are not necessarily followed anymore or, or sort of um, sometimes found ways in, in, which, in which to uh, sort of uh, to accumulate that, um, that rule.
1: So this leads to another question that I had uh, that I wanted you to comment on. Um, you touch on it in your conclusion. In your experience, in your research, to what extent do you encounter preservation of tradition versus innovation of tradition
0: right so um, chapter six in, in my in my book is is fully dedicated to this to discussing uh, uh, you know modernity and uh, tradition and innovation and I've, I've argued that um, you know the, this tension between um, trying to preserve the Vedas uh, is certainly one aspect of continuity you know the 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 tradition is being kept alive in in as far as the actual text is preserved as it has been preserved for many many centuries and uh i would say innovation there there are many ways in which one could look at innovation mostly uh, in relation to uh, vernacular forms of hinduism right so how how are these Brahmins as Vaidikas, so to speak, um, embedded in in this larger context of um, uh, Maharashtra and Hinduism, right? So there's a lot of um, um, particularities, right? Uh, And and there's a particular flavor to um, the the Hinduism in which these schools are embedded. So there's the whole uh, context of, say, um, Maharashtra and bhakti, or uh, as we were we were saying, the the actual uh, um, technology that that it comes with 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 uh, modernity, facebook and and whatnot. so there you can you can say that certain parts of the tradition are certainly um, or continue to be continue to be transmitted in the in the traditional way or orally even though uh, also texts have uh, um, now been introduced or, or recordings, as I was mentioning earlier. But, but the result, so to speak, is still to, or the aim is still to memorize this vast body of um, sound and to be able to reproduce that um, flawlessly. Um, however, there, there are many uh, ways in which, in which uh, innovations um, are being done. For example, um, there is um, one of one of the, the chap- uh, sub chapters in in, in um, chapter six looks at how a traditional shrauta uh, yagna, which is this very old form of um, uh, Vedic ritual, fire Vedic ritual, um, is sort of uh, performed in. Contemporary India and how how that's really interesting because this particular ritual was a Rajasuya and the Rajasuya is basically the um, um, The
1: consecration
0: Consecration ritual for for a king, right? There are no kings in India anymore So how do they how do they uh, justify that and how do they perform that? Um, so there is that that particular section in 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 the book Talks about this particular ritual and and the whole um, justification for the need of such a of such a ritual, right? And who who did who did they choose as as their king, for example? Which turned out to be um, actually a farmer from from Rajasthan who claimed to have royal blood, uh, or sorry, not Rajasthan but Madhya Pradesh, I believe. Um, anyway, so the point is. Um, how, how, the, how the certain rituals continue to be performed um, in t- today's India, right? Um, and, and, and the tensions that arise from that. Uh, I think, I think that's, that's one of the uh, things that fascinates me the most about this, this subject is um, the relationship between trying to preserve a particular tradition and what that means with, with this ideal of of a Brahmin, right? The ideal Brahmin versus um, negotiating all the um, changes and challenges that, that uh, one confronts in the modern world, right? Um, so
1: we're definitely in an age where tradition is being challenged like never before, I mean, tradition in general, um, as a concept, in various religious traditions on the planet, um, and it'll be interesting to see how something as as ancient and as perhaps faithful as Vedic transmission, Vedic recitation, it'll be interesting to see how it fares over the next century or so. Um, I have a question about something you commented on just now, and also earlier in the interview, in terms of this repertoire of of, of utterance that the student is responsible for mastering. Um, our audience may not have a sense of why you're so impressed. Can you give us a sense of how vast this utterance would be?
0: Yes, well, of course, it depends on, it depends on, on, on which shaka we're talking about, but any shaka, I mean, they could, um, just to give you an example, um, there is a, a particular ritual in which the whole corpus of one particular shaka is recited, or a particular the the, the core of that corpus is recited, and um, I was able to witness um, such a recitation of the full uh, uh, of the full shaka basically, um, and that that takes typically a week of um, almost uninterrupted recitation. So brahmins would wake up early. Um, perform a ritual and then uh, start with the recitation and uh, finish uh, at at uh, sunset right and then the next morning they would continue that and that lasts for for uh, yeah about, about a week about seven eight days uh, of like I don't know eight ten hours a day of reciting uninterruptedly so, um, yeah, that's quite, quite a bit uh, quite a few hours of, of uh, reciting from memory well
1: it's astonishing it's astonishing and it, it's difficult to really get a sense uh, it's, it's difficult enough to memorize uh, a Shakespearean sonnet <laughs> for example, exactly or, or even the lines of a play if you're an actor. I mean I have found that difficult in the past to, to memorize and. Uh, much less hours upon hours upon hours of of a virtual enunciation of intonation of utterance. Uh, I'm not sure if it easier or more difficult. Um, uh, the fact that 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 you're not cognizing what you're uttering. This is you as if a songbird learning a sophisticated piece. It's just it's just sound, it's sound and, and energy and vibration. I don't know if it would be easier or harder. Uh, more difficult to not know what you're saying. But nevertheless, um, you can one imagine memorizing hours upon hours upon hours of anything with precise pitch. It's, it's staggering. And unless someone actually has a taste of it, they, they, they they would not understand why you were so awestruck that you were pulled to study this uh, for two degrees now. So is there anything that, um, uh, let's end with, with a, a general question in terms of did anything really surprise you about your research? Did anything strike you? Did did you encounter something that you really didn't expect that you want to share with us?
0: Mm, that's a good question. Let me think about that. Well, what, what, I guess one of the things that really fascinated me um, was the, the example of the Veda Mandir, which is a temple in Nasik, in in, in a town in in Maharashtra and there is a temple there uh, dedicated to the Veda it's called Veda Mandir and there the Veda is represented as a huge um, um, sculpture of uh, a book uh, bound in in a western style Um, so that like a book the books that we know uh, in the west Um, and and it's made of of marble, it's huge and it has uh, the letters, uh, it, it has it engraved in Devanagari um, one, one, uh, uh, one verse from the Rig Veda and the Gayatri Mantra um, and, and um, you know it's being worshipped as Bhagavan Ved, it's a form of God and so that, that was really surprising to me because until then, you know, I had read Fritz Dahl where he, where he, you know, writes, if, if there's one thing the Vedas are not, our books. Um, and then I, you know, see this temple where I see the Vedas being represented as, as a book, right? As a Western bound book. Um, and so that, that was something that, that, that surprised me. And so, um, I've been also working a little bit uh, uh on that uh, for for this book, but uh, perhaps also um for a for a future article I'm um um might be working on that a little more. Um yeah, that's just one example. But but uh, to be to be honest, I was I was awestruck every day uh during my, my field work uh for this book. So uh
1: sounds yeah. like sounds like quite the journey. So in addition to this, this, uh, this bound, uh, Vedas multi at this temple, uh, is what is the, what is your current project? What are you researching at the moment?
0: Um, yes. Well, I've actually moved, uh, away, so to speak, from the Vedic tradition, uh, in the last few years. And I've done a couple of different things. And I'm currently working on popular urban religion, and I'm particularly interested in the little shrines uh, that we see uh, on the street, wayside shrines. And so if, um, I've written, uh, I've, I've put together a, a, an edited volume, a special issue with, with a colleague of mine, Raphael Bois in, in Paris. And um, I'm looking forward to actually writing um, my second book on um, so to speak, street religion, quote unquote, um, in a particular neighborhood in Pune. And I'm basically looking at how um, um, material religion, uh, space production or production of, of sacred space, and um, basically the display of religiosity in, 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 the, in, in the public sphere, or in the public space, um, is, is negotiated in, in Pune. That's my, my current project, or one of my current projects,
1: yes. So you've gone from these ancient, esoteric, traditional utterances to the modern streets of Pune. This is quite exactly. <laughs> this is quite, quite the diversity of scholarship. Um, so that's right. I believe we have taken uh, more than enough of a good time for one day. So I want to thank you for joining us for today's interview.
0: Oh, thank you for the invitation and for giving me a chance to um, revisit my own work. It's been sitting on a shelf for the past two years, basically, and now it's, it was a nice, nice way of coming back to it. It's our pleasure. We're always, we're
1: always. Uh, by the time the book is out, we've moved on to the next project. Uh, I, I, I know the feeling well. <laughs> um, so. <laughs> Uh, once again for our listeners we have been speaking with Dr. Borayin Larios who is assistant professor uh, at the Institute for South Asian Tibetan and Buddhist Studies in Vienna Uh, we've been talking with him about his open access book Embodying the Vedas, Traditional Vedic Schools of Contemporary Maharashtra. Thanks very much and to our listeners, uh, until next time, keep reading. Take care.